Thank you, Michael. I'd like to thank the committees and those responsible for affording me this honor and privilege to share with you this morning. It is not often that I was asked to do anything except leave in the past. <laughs> so indeed, it is an honor. I sat here this morning trying to think what I should talk with you about. It's rather difficult to say things to people who seem to already know something about everything. <laughs> and I have yet to see a drunk who didn't know something about everything. <laughs> and so I began to run thoughts through my mind, and the very first thing that came to mind was talk about money. <laughs> talk about money. And some said, no, you can't do that. We've all got a little money in our pockets today. You see, when a drunk gets sober, they also get cheap. <laughs> and they learn to hold on to money. So then I said, well, maybe I should talk about world affairs. You know, the world's in a mess today. There's something going on everywhere. So I thought I'd talk about world events. Some said, no, you can't do that. Because at one time or another, we've all sat down with drink in hand and solved the world's problems. <laughs> but then I said, well, maybe I'll talk about sex. <laughs> I think I'll talk about sex this morning. <laughs> and something said, no, you can't do that because all drunks know how to mess that up too. I could not come up with anything that I could talk with you about that you didn't know something about. And then something said to me, why don't you talk about drinking? Now, I don't think there's anyone here who knows the darn thing about drinking. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in here. <laughs> so I thought I'd talk about drinking this morning. And not so much about what alcohol did to me. But I wanted to share with you what you've done for me since I've been here. When I first came here, I didn't want to be here because I didn't feel as though I belonged here. When I came through those doors, you told me these things. You said that if I wanted what you had, I first had to learn how to do a few things. And the very first thing you told me was that I had to take the cotton out of my ears and put it into my mouth. You said that I had to learn how to listen in order to listen to learn. Learn to listen in order to listen to learn. And then you said that I had to learn to put things into their proper perspective. I had to learn to establish some types of priorities for my life. But most importantly of all, you told me that I had to learn how to put first things first. Today, first and foremost in my life, I am an alcoholic. My name is Leon Biggs. Hi, everyone. <laughs> when I say to you that I'm an alcoholic, I don't know when I became an alcoholic. I don't know where I was, what I was doing, or whom I was with. That's not important today. The fact is, I am an alcoholic, and I shall remain an alcoholic until the day that I die. I've learned to accept that now, and I can live with it. I find that it's not too bad being an alcoholic, as long as I don't forget what to do about it. And I can do something about it simply by being in places like this with people like you, trying to learn to live my life one day at a time without the benefit of alcohol. 
Of course, the time came for me when I felt as though that was totally impossible. There was no way that I could live without drinking. Because I had gotten to the point where I felt that I literally had to drink to live. And I practically lived to drink. But I didn't have a problem. Oh, I knew that those of us who would drink a little too much and would somehow forget to get up and go to work the next morning, that was normal. Many of my friends did this. You see, they took those Blue Mondays and Blue Tuesdays. And everyone has the flu on Wednesday. We all know that. So there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't have a problem. And I also knew that those of us who would drink a little too much and would stagger up and down the street and sometimes get behind the wheel of an automobile and try to drive it and, and get picked up by the law and go to jail, that too was normal. Many of my friends did this. So there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't have a problem. I knew the character was the problem. We all know the person was the problem. And it wasn't I. Because first of all, I was a gentleman. And I conducted myself as a gentleman. <laughs> now, my interpretation of a gentleman was, if you wore a clean shirt, a necktie, and a jacket, you were a gentleman. <laughs> now, my favorite act was to get off work, rush home, change into a fresh shirt, necktie, and jacket, and get out of the house before the chairman of the board got there. <laughs> Rush down to my favorite bar, sit on my favorite stool, and have my drinks like a gentleman. Now, I said favorite bar, favorite stool. If you were a bar drinker, you had a favorite stool. Look at the hairs just nodding in here. <laughs> you see, every good bar drinker has that one particular stool where those drinks seem to taste just a little better. Now, my stool had to be located directly in front of a mirror, right straight in front of a mirror. <laughs> Whereas the more I would sit there and drink and look into that mirror, ah, the better I looked. <laughs> and the more I drank, the better she looked. <laughs> Don't care how she looked when she came there, the more I drank, the better she looked. You know, we hear this adage about uh, when, you, when you start drinking that the first thing that becomes impaired is your judgment. Forget it. The first thing that goes is your eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, one day I sat there on my favorite stool having my drink like a gentleman, and I casually turned my head and looked over to my left, and a fellow named Joe was sitting at the end of the bar, and he had his elbows on the bar, and I said, that's bad manners. <laughs> but he had his head in his hand, and he had saliva coming out of his mouth. And I said, my God, that's despicable. If I should ever get that bad, I'll quit. <laughs> well, one day I found myself sitting on my favorite stool, having my drink like a gentleman. But I also noticed I was just like Joe. Elbows on bar, head in hand, saliva coming out of my mouth and down my shirt front and necktie, and looked and saw I was just like old Joe, and I sworn I'd never get that way. So I quickly turned my head and looked to the right. And at this end of the bar was a guy named Sam. And Sam was collapsed, lying on the bar. And I said, if I should ever get that bad, then I'll quit. Folks, I almost died trying to get as bad as old Joe and old Sam, but I didn't have a problem. 
and it got worse. I was the kind of drunk that got sick. I don't mean I had a headache now and then, or a stomachache now and then, folks. I got sick. And I contend to this very day that I am the sickest person ever to come through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. No one came here sicker than I. Now, if you don't feel that way about your very own self, you may have some more drinking to do. <laughs> Nobody comes here feeling good. I have yet to see a person get off of a stool at Dairy Queen and say, I'm going to join AA. <laughs> You've got to be sick to come here. And those mornings that I would come to, and I use the term come to because drunks don't wake up, they come to. <laughs> and I would get out of bed the best way that I could. I'd roll out, fall out, sometimes get kicked out. And now I've got to stagger, stumble, and sometimes crawl to the restroom and get there and make that real vital decision as to which end goes on the commode first. <laughs> my head or my rear. And in most cases, my head found that bowl first. Now, Bill Cosby said those things were not designed for faces. <laughs> and it's kind of sad when you're down there on your knees and you're hugging that American standard and you're watching something green come out of your mouth. Sometimes something yellow comes from your mouth. Sometimes blood comes from your mouth and your nose and your eyes begin to run. And then the time comes when nothing comes from your mouth but those god-awful sounds. And you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is this the price that I must pay for getting drunk last night? But I didn't have a problem. And while they were on my knees, I learned to pray. And my prayer was, oh, God, if you get this monkey off my back and take away this ill-fated feeling, I'll never get that drunk again. I will never get that drunk again. Not once did I say I wouldn't get drunk again. I just wouldn't get that drunk again. <laughs> and, you know, somehow even then those prayers were heard because I was able to get up off my, off my knees and, and, and stagger over to a face bowl and splash cold water into your face and into your eyes and look at the, into the mirror and say, oh my God, what is that thing staring back at me? But I didn't have a problem. And it got worse. It never got any better for me. It always got worse. You know, I recall going home one bright, sunny afternoon and, and, and walked up to my front door and took out my key and tried to open that front door. It appeared to me that every time I tried to insert that key in the lock, the lock would move. I would reach for it, it moved. I stabbed, it moved. I stabbed, it moved. I stabbed, it moved. And after a period of time, the door swung inward, and a fellow stood there and said to me, Leon, you live next door. <laughs> now, any time you misplace a whole house, you may have a problem. And mine got worse. It always got worse. And you know, I heard something about instructions when I came in. People kept telling me about instructions and instructions, that you have to learn to follow instructions. You know, a drunk can't follow directions. You've got to learn to follow instructions. And it, and it, it kind of reminded me of a guy I once heard about. This guy uh, could not do anything right, but he liked to drink. And his only drink was wine. I don't care if he came to your home and you offer him the best of bourbon, scotches, blends, or what have you, he would politely decline and say, do you have any wine? Now, I don't mean the kind of guy that would go down to the corner carryout and get that bottle in that brown paper bag and stick it on his jacket when he saw you coming because he didn't want to share it. This guy drank wine all over the world. Matter of fact, he calls himself a wine connoisseur. <laughs> a wine connoisseur. Now, folks, in my opinion, 
Anyone who drinks that much wine is a wine old, period. <laughs> but be he what he may, he took a trip. And halfway around the world, and he found himself in one of these little small islands out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And he went out of the town that night and got drunk on that wine. And when he came to the following morning, he found himself in jail. He didn't know what he was doing there, nor what he had done to be there. So when they came to get him and take him down to the old courtyard to have his charges read off, he stood there before the old monarch with his head hung like most of us do and heard those charges being read. After which the old king said, Sir, you have committed a capital offense which is punishable by death. Therefore, I am compelled to sentence you to death. He said, However, in view of the fact that you are not familiar with our customs and you are a stranger in our country, if you can accomplish three feats, I will set you free. He said, now over there in that field, there are three tents out there. In that first tent, there's a gallon of wine. I want you to go in there and drink that gallon of wine and come out of there within 15 minutes. The old guy just rubbed his cheek and smiled. said, that's not too bad. He said, now in that second tent, there's a lion in there that has an abscess tooth. I want you to go in there and pull that lion's tooth and come out of there within 15 minutes. He got a little concerned about that one. <laughs> the king said, now, in that third tent, there's an oversexed woman in there who's never been satisfied. I want you to go in there and take care of that business and come out of there within 15 minutes. He said, if you can accomplish those three feasts, I'll set you free. He said, okay, I said, heck, I got nothing to lose here. So he walked into the first tent and immediately turned around and came back out. He said, king? The king said, yes. Well, in view of the fact that I'm a condemned man, he said, may I have my choice of wine? King said, suddenly. He said, well, take away this important stuff in here and give me some Thunderbirds. <laughs> <coughs> this guy figured if he was going to die, he was going to die in style. So they made the exchange of wines. He walked back into the tent, turned up that gallon of wine, and drank about half of it and brought the jug down and rested it on his stomach. And like most drunks, he had no concept of time, but he dared not be late coming out of there. So he turned the jug up again and, and finished it off. About seven and a half minutes, he came staggering out that tent, walked up to the king. Okay, king, what's next? The king said, second tent. Now, here's where he got his instructors confused. You know, any time you go out at night and you drink a lot, and as Angie said last night, you drink a glass of water, you're in trouble the next day. He started back toward that tent, and that wine caught him, and he began to stumble and stagger, and he fell into that tent, forgot what was in there, and that lion jumped up. And there was roaring and screaming and yelling, and you never seen such a commotion in your life. This guy began to call his mother, he called his father, he called his sister, he called his brother, he called his girlfriend, he called his buddy. Someone come and get this thing off me. And here in the old line, they began to fight. They fought back and forth, and the old tent began to sway back and forth, back and forth. And then that son of Paul just fell, and the whole tent collapsed. And they rumbled and tumbled on the ground for a while. Then there was a purr, a smooth little purr. About 14 and a half minutes later, something looking like a man came staggering out of that tent, clothes all torn into shreds, one eye out of his socket, down on his cheek, his arm hanging limp, he's bloody and all scratched up. He walked up to the king and said, okay, king, now where's the woman with the abscess tooth? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, here's a guy who could not follow instructions. Somehow he got the lion and the woman confused. Now, I like to spin that little yarn just to let you know how bad I was when I got here. I could not do anything right. My sponsor tells me this very that I had trouble doing wrong right. That was terrible. 
Yet I didn't have a problem. But when you took a look at me when I came to you, this, you said to me, Leon, you're not such a bad guy trying to get good. You are a sick person trying to get well. You told me that I have a disease, a disease called alcoholism. And to this very day, there is no known cure to man for this disease that I have. But you said it could be arrested one day at a time if only I could learn to follow a few simple instructions. You said that if I could become teachable enough to learn to follow a few simple instructions, my life could get better. You said if I didn't take the first drink, I couldn't get drunk. Just don't take the first drink, you said. You kept putting a lot of emphasis on that very first drink. And obviously I thought that there was something wrong with all of you. Because I knew that one drink had never gotten me drunk. I considered myself to be a good, upstanding, self-righteous drunk. I was thoroughly convinced that it was always that one drink, that first drink, after the second fifth that got me into trouble. <laughs> if I just hadn't had that one for the road, I'd be okay. Like most drunks, I was too smart. I was too intelligent. I was born in on brilliance. I was just too smart to realize that had I not taken the first one, I could never have gotten to the last one. I didn't know this. You taught me this. You also told me that you knew me, that you had long known me. Though I had not set eyes on any of you before, you contended that you knew me. You said that you had known for a long time that I had been out there in the outside world writing checks drawn on the bank of sobriety. And those checks would always bounce back marked insufficient funds. I had made no deposits, no contributions toward that bank of sobriety. Therefore, I could withdraw nothing. But you also said that if I was sincere in my efforts of merely trying to get sober and of trying to learn to stay sober, that you would allow me to write just one more check drawn on that bank of sobriety and that you would co-sign on that promissory note given to me one final chance at life. For that, I shall be eternally grateful, for you cared when no one else did. And then you sat me down and left me all alone. You moved yourselves off into a corner, and you began to talk about me. Though you talked in a quiet voice, I could overhear some of the things that you were saying. Things like, we've got a real weird one on our hands. <laughs> Things like, I've never seen anyone this bad. <laughs> Things like, this guy's a total wreck. And then someone said, yes, well, what are we going to do with him? And then it got quiet. What are we going to do with him? And then a strange type of quiet seemed to just settle over that room. And after a period of time, one of you spoke up with a voice that seemed to just rise above the others. With a voice that seemed to just ring out with a measure of authority. Today I know that the voice that I heard was the voice of a God of my understanding speaking through you. For that voice said, I don't know what we're going to do with him, but we're not going to throw him out. You were willing to let me stay as bad as I thought that I was. And then you came back to me and began to discuss this illness. You told me that I was a very, very sick person. I was an emergency case. And I would need immediate care. And all of you collectively were going to serve as my doctors. And for me and me alone, you were going to write out a prescription. 
and that prescription would call for 12 capsules to my recovery. But I must take them as directed. Follow the instructions. I must take them 1 through 12, not 1 to 12, but 1 through 12. You also told me that you were going to, you were going to put those 12 capsules into a special kind of bottle and that you were going to build and mold that particular bottle specifically for me. I was very special to you. I was the new kid on the block, and I was very, very special. But you also said that it was going to take you some time to, to build and mold that bottle for me. And while you were in the process of doing so, I would have to learn the most important thing in my life at that time. For you said that I would have to learn how to wait. I would have to learn patience. Now, we all know that alcoholics are the most impatient people anywhere. We want things to happen for us two days ago. But you said, if I wanted what you had, I had to learn patience. At that point in my life, I wanted anything other than what I had. So I tried to learn patience. And believe me, it wasn't easy. But I gave it my best effort. And after a period of time, when you felt, not I, when you felt, and so I was, first of all, able, second of all, ready, and most importantly of all, willing. The key for me was willingness. When you felt as though I was able, ready, and willing to begin taking those 12 capsules, that is when you presented that bottle to me. Now, this bottle didn't come in the shape or form of bottles that I've been accustomed to seeing. This bottle came to me in the shape of a book. And across its label, you put the words Alcoholics Anonymous. You said to me, in this bottle are your 12 capsules to recovery. Take them as directed. Follow the instructions. I tried to do that by admitting that I was powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. I had known for years that I tried to learn to drink and stay sober. Yet I always wound up drunk. I had tried all these so-called remedies that people tell you about, and you've heard them all. Never drink on an empty stomach. You heard that. Eat before you drink. Eat before you drink. I'd go and gouge myself with food. And then I'd go out and drink that bourbon. And I'd still get drunk and sick. One of my colleagues called me to the side. You know, I said drunk knew something about everything. He called me to the side said, listen, you just get drunk too quick. Maybe you should put some kind of coating in your stomach. Why don't you drink some olive oil before you drink? He said, that olive oil puts a coating in your stomach. You won't get drunk so quick. I went to the drugstore, and I got myself a bottle of olive oil. And I drank down that olive oil. And then I went out and drank that bourbon. And I still got drunk and sick. Now, mind you, I said, now, drunks knew something about everything. Now, there's at least one drunk in every peer group who knows everything about everything. <laughs> So he calls me and says, listen, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Here's what you should do. Get yourself a stick of butter, and you eat that butter. You ever tried that? Don't. <laughs> he said, what that butter does is that it puts a real thick coating in your stomach. <laughs> so when you drink, the whiskey will slide on through. Now that made sense to this sick drunk. Because if, it is, if it's not within me, it can't bother me. So I went to the refrigerator, and I got myself a stick of butter, and I literally forced that butter down my throat, gagging all the way. 
but now the butter stayed, so now I'm ready. <laughs> you know, when uh, an athlete trains for the next game, uh, the next match, in particular fighters train for the next bout, they reach a certain peak where they feel as though they are ready to conquer their foe. Now here I am, armed with a stomach full of butter. <laughs> I'm going to go out and defeat this alcohol. I go to my favorite bar, sit on my favorite stool, and begin tossing that bourbon down, and I still got drunk and sick. This time I was just a big, sick, greasy drunk, that's all. <laughs> I finally had to surrender and throw a bull's hand, and admit that I had no power over alcohol in my life with a total wreck. And then you gave me a second capsule followed by a third. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And made a decision to turn our world and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I'd heard you talk about a higher power, so I inquired about this. You told me to choose one of my own understanding, call him what I may. I have chosen to call my higher power God as I understand him. And from you I learned faith. From you I've learned to believe. You have given me a strong faith and a strong belief that this power can give me some measure of sanity. For no person in their right sane mind could have nor would have, nor would have done the thing that I've been doing. And then you said that I had to put my will and my life within his care and leave it there. And at this point I had trouble. I had a lot of trouble. You see, I wanted this God of my understanding to take away all of my drinking-related problems. But I wanted to continue with the same lifestyle. I wanted to go around the same people, go to the same places, and do all the same things. Just don't drink. <laughs> and I was having trouble. Oh, I was going to meetings every day, sometimes twice a day, three times a day, because you told me to do this. And I walked into a meeting room, as I did these meeting rooms here this weekend, and I would hear all the laughter and the joy and the happiness there. And I thought that I was supposed to feel that way all the time. So when you ask me, Leon, how are you? I would put my hand in yours, I put my arms around you and say, I'm fine. I lied to you. I lied to you. I was dying because no one had told me that it was all right for me to hurt. I did not know it was okay to hurt, so I didn't tell you I hurt. I was walking around here with you just as drunk as I could be, yet I hadn't touched a drink. All because I had failed to follow your instructions. I had not yet learned to listen. I still had cotton in my ears. I heard you, but I didn't listen. I heard you clearly when you said, we are going to be your, your physicians, all of us. But you also said, get yourself your own personal physician and call him a sponsor. Get yourself a sponsor. You said, I hadn't done this. Because I was a self-made, self-run man, and I was to do this thing my way. And my way was literally killing me. So I thought I'd better get a sponsor. And I shopped around, too, because you told me to look around. And I shopped around. <laughs> and I shopped, and I shopped, and I found a guy that I thought that I wanted. Worst mistake I ever made. <laughs> I asked him to become my sponsor. He asked me some questions. He opened his mouth to say yes, but he also lifted up a great big size 12 shoe. And as those lips closed on that word yes, that size 12 came crushing down on poor little old me. 
Now, I told you I was smart. I told you I was intelligent. I told you I was brilliant. And I was a super con artist. I could con an Eskimo out of his igloo. But somehow, from that day in June of 1973 to this day in November of 1994, with all of this infinite wisdom that I possess, I have not been able to con myself from underneath that size 12 shoe and pick up the first drink. <laughs> now, I didn't get what I wanted. I got exactly what I needed. Good, strong, hard, firm, no-nonsense sponsorship. I'm a member of the old school of sponsorship. I hear this. I suggest that you do this. Or I request that you do this like hell they request. They told me what to do. <laughs> In no uncertain terms, they spoke in a language that I understood. You know the language, the language we hear in the alleys? That was the language that I understood at that time, and that's what I was told. Sponsorship. I'm a strong advocate of sponsorship. I can't stay sober. There's no way in the world I can stay sober. Well, we can. I can't, but we can. And I would suggest to anyone here this morning... If you are sincere about getting your life together and you don't have a sponsor, I would strongly recommend that you get one and use that sponsor. Don't go around here yelling, I got a sponsor, and don't know the sponsor's phone number. <laughs> Talk with your sponsor. My goodness, when things go wrong, call your sponsor. When things go right and you're feeling too good, call your sponsor. Something's wrong. My goodness, drunks are not supposed to feel too good. Call your, you can't have that good stuff. Call your sponsor, something wrong. If you get up in the morning and look out and see the sun come up in the west, something wrong. Call your sponsor. The sun ain't supposed to rise in the west, supposed to rise in the east. My God, your sponsor may tell you, just turn around. You know, who knows? I, I, you know, I would call my sponsor I, I, and I'd say, hey, 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 Lionel, how about this? And he, he was so calm, and he'd stand back and look at me and say, don't drink. Go to meetings and read the book. <laughs> yeah, but how about this? Don't drink. Go to meetings, read the book. Yeah, but how about this? Don't drink. Go to meetings, read the book. <clears throat> One day I approached him and I had tears in my eyes and asked him a question. And he calmly says, is it in the book? I said, I don't know. He said, go read the book. I read the book. Read it again. <laughs> now, at this time in my life, some of this kindness began to loosen up. And I'm learning a little bit about how to listen. And I listened to my sponsor because he had something that I wanted. I didn't know what it was. But whatever he had, I wanted, and, and I was going to get it if I had to steal it. <laughs> so I went back and I got this book. And I read it again, from cover to cover. And after a period of time, I came back to him, and I asked that very same question. And he calmly says, is it in the book? Well, I can find it in the book. Then you don't need to know it. <laughs> Now, I, I've heard that you're not supposed to get resentments against your sponsor. 
but he had conned me, the greatest con of all con, into reading this darn book again. <laughs> now, little did I know what he was trying to tell me at that time in my life about how to get sober, how to learn to stay sober, and how to live a decent, respectful, productive life. It was all right here within the first 164 pages of this book. And after a period of time, I understood what that third capsule was all about. And then you gave me a fourth followed by a fifth. Made it searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I will sum those, summarize those in three phases for me. Clean house. Trust God. Help others. Clean house. Trust God. Help others. I like to think of those first five capsules for me as those that got me cleaned out inside. I like to think of six, seven, eight, and nine as I apply them to my life, as those that put me on the road to restitution. For those first five allowed me to permit you to enter my life and teach me to rebuild my life upon a foundation of spirituality. They further allowed me to permit you in my, into my life and teach me humility. Teach me to be humble enough to ask the God of my understanding to help me with these shortcomings and character defects, for those I have many. They also allowed me to permit you to enter my life and teach me how to make amends. Teach me to say I'm sorry with sincerity because I did not know how. And one day I asked of one of you, how do I make amends to someone who may have passed away or who may have moved away? And from you I learned that this God whom I thought had forsaken me, this God whom I thought had deserted me, this God whom I thought had moved away from me, I learned from you that God had never moved. It was I who had moved. I learned from you that this God of my understanding still resides in that same little house over there on that hill, and he still has the same phone number. All I've got to do is call him on the line of prayer, and his line is never busy. So I fall to my knees, and I pick up that telephone of prayer. And I say to him that I harmed so-and-so many, many years ago, and I'd love to make amends, but I don't know where he or she is. Will you please deliver that message? And then I feel very, very good after having done so, because I know that the God of my understanding has the greatest communications network there is. And believe me, he can reach out and touch us all. And then you gave me a tenth capsule. You said that I had to continue with this personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it. I have no problem with that today. If I should wrong you today, I would admit it today. You see, when you gave me that fourth capsule, you told me something else. You said that if I got the house in order, and I kept the house in order, that one day you would allow me to become a landlord. At that time, I knew not what you spoke of. Today, I'm glad to say that I know exactly what you spoke of. Today, I feel as though I am a landlord. And there's a tenant residing within this house, that tenant being the God of my understanding. And the God of my understanding will not reside in a dirty, filthy, unkept house. That is why you gave me that tenth capsule, that maintenance tool, to keep this house in order. I must do something with me each and every day. And then you gave me an eleventh capsule, sought through prayer and meditation, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Each morning when I awaken, 
my knees find my floor as they did this morning. And I thank the God of my understanding for allowing me to see just one more day. And I don't forget to be grateful. I must remember that those mornings that I'm allowed to wake up, there's someone somewhere who does not wake up. I don't forget to be grateful. And I must further remember that those mornings that I'm allowed to wake up and get up, there are those who may be able to wake up, but they can't get up. I don't forget to be grateful. And I must further remember that those mornings that I'm allowed to wake up, get up, and complain about having to go to work, and many of us do that, there are those who may be able to wake up and get up and have no jobs to complain about. And then there are those unfortunate few who may be able to wake up and get up and look up and see the stars in the sky because they have no roof over their heads. I don't forget to be grateful. And my prayer is very, very simple. I ask nothing for me. I have everything that I need. I have everything that I've ever needed. I just didn't know where it was. I ask nothing for me. My prayer is so simple. And the reason that I don't ask for anything for me is that I have it. I've got everything that I need right here. But put a smile on someone's face on any given day. My day has not been wasted. I ask him not to move that mountain that stands before me. Just give me the strength to climb it. I ask him not to take away my obstacles or my stumbling blocks, but give me a little wisdom so that I can guide myself around them. I was told in one of these meeting rooms that when the greatest mountain of all, the greatest challenge that I will ever face, that mountain of life, life itself is the greatest mountain that we'll ever see. And I was told that when that mountain of life stands before you and you need a hand to help you make that climb, just reach out for mine and I will lead you through the storms of trouble times. Folks, I've had many of storms of trouble times to come into my life since coming to you. But the hand of AA, your hand was always there to lead me and to guide me. And then finally, you gave me a 12 capsule. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now you tell me a number of things. You tell me, first of all, that I shouldn't come here to you at this wonderful gathering, and tomorrow morning we close up and go our separate ways. I shouldn't walk out those doors, get into my car, and drive back to Columbus and leave it right here in Cincinnati. I should take it with me every place that I go. That I should no longer approach this fellowship as if it were a job. I shouldn't try to work these steps or work by these principles, but that I should try to live by these principles. I should wear it like a cloak, try to live by these principles. And you also told me that I've been with you long enough now, and I should know a little bit about how to stay sober, just a little bit. And then you sprung the trap on me because you told me that I had become trustworthy, trustworthy. It had been a long time since anyone had trusted me with anything, yet you were going to trust me with something, not with something trivial but the most precious, the most vital, the most important commodity that we have to offer 
you were going to entrust that to me. For you said to me that you wanted me to go out and carry your message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Folks, the most important thing that we have to offer is a message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you wanted me, this worthless, helpless, beaten up, broken down old drunk, to go out and talk to your message. I like to think I try to do that to the best of my ability. And you may often hear me say that if I'm seen walking down the street and I appear to be struggling because my knees are bent, my back may be bowed, but I got a drunk draped across my shoulder, I may look at you and say, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. For every sick, suffering alcoholic in those streets this very day who is suffering and almost dying has to be my brother. I shall never forget from whence I came. I shall never forget the day that I cried help. I can't forget the day that I cried help, and that God of my understanding heard those cries for help, and he sent out a message, and that message came right here to you, and he said, one of my children is out there suffering. He's had enough now. Send out a spokesman and bring my son home. Send out a spokesman and bring my son home. He didn't say go out there and get that drunk. He said, bring my son home. Folks, I'm God's child. We're all God's children. He said, bring my son home. And you quickly got your heads together and you sent a man to me. He came and found me lying down in self-pity, filled with hatred, guilt, and despair. But he extended the huge hand of Alcoholics Anonymous by saying to me, come on, son, we're going home. He said, come on, son, we're going home. I had long forgotten about a home. There wasn't a home. There was a house out there, but not a home. And this man just stood there with his hand extended, saying, Come on, son, we're going home. And through these bloodshot eyes, I looked up at him. And I could barely make out his image, because he was wearing a strange type of jacket, sparkling, blind, and white. But he just stood there with his hand extended, saying, Come on, son, we're going home. And then he said those words. He said, You don't have to hurt anymore. You don't have to hurt anymore. Folks, I had not known life without pain. But this man was telling me that I didn't have to, have to live that way any longer. So with all the strength I could muster, I picked up one weak, frail hand and reached up and took hold to the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous. For here was the only help that I had. And this man lifted me out of that pit that I was in. He bathed my dirty, filthy body. And he tried to soothe my tattered soul. He said, we've got a long, long way to go, son. 
and it won't be easy, but we can make it. He didn't say, you can make it, or I can make it. He said, we can make it, if we take just one step for one day at a time. And then we started that long, long journey home to you. He led, and I desperately tried to follow, taking just one little step for one day at a time. And then one day he stopped. He knew how sick I was, how tired, weak, and cold I was. He'd been there. And that is when he took that beautiful white jacket from around his shoulders and very gently placed it around my shoulders. And he said to me, son, don't fall back into those pits and get this jacket dirty because one day you're going to have to pass it on. He said, if you want to keep it, you must be willing to give it away. He said, there have been many to go before you and there shall be others to follow. But one day we shall all be together at the big meeting under the big tent. And once again he began to lead me and I began to follow, taking just one little step for one day at a time. And finally that day came when he brought me home to you. And you were everything he said you would be. Loving people, caring people, understanding people. That is when you told me how very, very sick I was. That is when you allowed me to write just one more check drawn on that bank of sobriety and to co-sign on that promissory note. And I'm only here this morning merely to try to pay an installment on that promissory note. And then you spoon-fed me 12 capsules to my recovery. And after you had given me the 12, while wearing my white jacket, you told me to go out and carry your message. I like to think that one day I walked out those doors and looked into that same pit that I'd come from, and then I was able to extend my hand and, and say to my little sister or my little brother, come on, brother or sister, we're going home. You don't have to hurt anymore. Folks, I don't hate this morning. I don't have to hate this morning. And it is all because of you. It is all because you cared when no one else did. You cared enough to give me one final chance at life. And I am so grateful. Because time had run out on me. I had gotten kind of like old man River. I got so, so hurt and so tired and so sick of trying. I got tired of living but I was afraid of dying. And just like old man, I just kept on rolling along. But I had nothing to live for. I felt as though I had nothing for which to live for. I felt that I'd been rejected from life. I'd been neglected by friends, by family, by loved ones, even by God himself. I felt that nobody cared about Leon. I felt much like a little boy I once heard about, a little boy named Johnny. Johnny was a problem child had spent many of his young years in prison. It had gotten to the point that his parents told him never to come home again. And his little sister, whom he loved so much, told him she never, ever wanted to see him again. Johnny found himself behind prison walls once again. This time, while behind those prison walls, Johnny met a man. And that man to Johnny was such as the man that you had sent to me. A one-of-a-kind kind of man. Though he was doing two consecutive lifetimes, he had no provisions for a parole. He appeared to have something. He had that sense of direction. He had that sense of self-confidence. He had a lot of self-respect. He had respect for and of his fellow man. He had that sense of inner peace, inner calmness. He had what we know as serenity. And Johnny wanted this. 
So one day Johnny approached him and said to him, Oh man, you know that you are doing two consecutive lifetimes. You're never going to be free. How can you be so happy? The old man just looked at him and said, Son, I am free. I am free from the bondages of alcohol. He said, While behind these prison walls I found the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And through this fellowship I found a God of my understanding. I prayed to my God, Son, why don't you pray? And little Johnny just shook his little head and said, But I don't know how to pray. The old man said, Just talk to him, son. He will hear you, and he'll understand. So that night, little Johnny fell to his knees, and he said, God, this is Johnny. I know not how to pray. But the old man out there said, If I should talk to you, you would hear me, and you'd understand. God, I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of hurting, I'm tired of jail cells, I'm tired of being alone. Please help me. And that night, Johnny slept. For the first time in many years, Johnny got a full night's sleep. The next one, when he awakened, he just automatically fell to his knees and said, Thank you, God, for a good night's sleep. And went on about his day. But every day thereafter, Johnny had something to say to this God that he had no understanding of. And it wasn't very long before the other staff could see some changes in Johnny. There appeared to be a little light in his eyes, a little glow in his cheeks, a little smile across his brow. That look of defiance that we often carry had gone. Johnny had found a God of his understanding. And it wasn't very long after that that he got a message from the warden that he was to be paroled, and his little heart just jumped with joy. But suddenly the fear and the remorse set in because Johnny remembered he had no place to go. No one to turn to. So he sought the only companion that he had. And he said to him, Oh man, they're going to throw me out of here. I have no place to go, no one to talk to. What can I do? And the old man just looked at him and said, I can't help you now, son. You must rely on your higher power. And once again that night, little Johnny fell to his knees and he said, God, this is Johnny. They're going to throw me out of here. I have no place to go, no one to turn to. I don't want to go back to those places that I've been. I want a new life. Please help me. And once again he slept. But sometime during the course of the evening, the answer came. It didn't come in the form of thunder or lightning, but in the still and peaceful calmness of that night, something said to him, Why don't you write your parents a letter? Ask them to forgive you as you have learned to forgive yourself. So Johnny began to write, Dear Mom and Dad, I know that it grieves you to even hear from me, for throughout life I've brought you nothing but pain, sorrow, misery, and despair. But I'm being released from prison on Sunday, and I have no place to go and no one to turn to. I beg of you to accept me at home just one more time and give me one final chance at life. He said, While behind these prison walls I met a man, and through this man I found a God of my understanding. I have faith in my God, and I do believe that with God's help and with your help, I can build a new life for myself. He said, my train will pass by the back of our house on Sunday afternoon. If you'll accept me just one more time, please tie one single white ribbon around that little tree in the backyard. If that ribbon is there, I shall get off that train and come home to you. If there is no ribbon, I shall remain on that train and continue on out of your lives never to bother you again. Love, Johnny. 
Before that letter left the prison, the old warden read it. And he quickly summoned his sergeant of the guard and said to him, Sergeant, I think perhaps you better ride that train home with little Johnny. Because if they don't accept him, there's no telling what he may do. If they should reject him, you bring him back here and I will take him home with me. You see, the old warden had taken a liking to little Johnny, as had so many others. So that Sunday morning, little Johnny packed his meager belongings, and he and the old sergeant boarded that train, and they began that long, long, long ride. Johnny sat by the window and looked out at the countryside. And for the first time, he could see flowers and trees and grasses and gardens and all the vegetation. He could also see dogs and cats and birds and butterflies and, and, and cattle and all the animals. But most of all, through clear eyes, Johnny could see sunlight. He could appreciate the workings of God. And as that train began to build up its momentum and move rapidly down those tracks, his little heart began to beat faster and faster, and the anxiety began to set in because Johnny wondered what was at the end of the line for a train that had no real destination. Just as I so often wondered what was at the end of the line for me, as long as I continued to ride that runaway train of alcoholism. And as Johnny's train neared that house, he could no longer hold back those tears in his eyes. They began to stream down his cheeks, and that old sergeant, he too, became quite misty-eyed because they were both filled with wonder. And finally, that train drew abreast to the back of that house, and they both eagerly looked out that window. And on that little tree, there was not one single white ribbon. Instead, that little tree was covered with white ribbons just fluttering in the wind and a big, huge sign that said, Welcome home, son. We love you and we'll accept you as you are. Those are the words that you said to this bumbling drunk when I came staggering through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. You said to me, Come on in, Leon. We love you and we'll accept you as you are. And just like little Johnny, who got off that train that had no destination and ran home to his parents and embraced them and kissed his little sister, I finally got off that deadly runaway train of alcoholism and I came running home to you crying, folks, I'm coming home. And that's exactly what you've given me as a home. You've given me everything in life that alcohol so falsely and so rudely promised me. You've given me a will to live. You've given me a burning desire to want to go out and try to help my fellow man. But most of all, you've given me back my life. A life that I did not deserve. You saw fit to give that back to me. And according to all of man's justice, I should not be standing before you this morning. It is only through divine justice that I stand before you. How do I say thank you? How do I let you know how grateful I am? Each time that I try to repay you, I know that I shortchange you. Each time that I try to express my gratitude, I know that I still come up short. But on the day that you signed that promissory note, giving me one final chance at life, I made a vow never to allow that note to go past due. Now I want to say one more time that I'm only here this morning just trying to pay an installment on that promissory note. But while I'm here with you this morning, at this great event, I'll ask just one other thing of you. Well, my work here is done, and I've been called on to the big meeting. I hope on that particular day you can take that promissory note and sign it just one more time. And this time, mark it, well done, son, paid in full. Thank you. <laughs>